Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. Is that the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Sure, with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. Welcome to episode 176 of the Podium and Panel Podcast, recording live from Maranat, Wisconsin today. We have three cases today, two from the Illinois Appellate Court First District and one from the Seventh Circuit. And before we get started, uh, happy Veterans Day. It was uh, yesterday, but happy Veterans Day to all those who served so that we can talk about cases like these and have freedoms and enjoy all the liberties that we have in this country and this still greatest nation in the world. My dad was a Marine, and my father-in-law was an Air Force, or still are, I guess. You never stop, but uh, in any event. First case today is from the Illinois Appellate First, Mathis versus Yildiz. The second case today is from the Seventh Circuit, Cornus and Rose International versus Acuity. And the third and final case is also from the Illinois Appellate First, Overland, Overland Bond and Investment Corp versus Calhoun. Turning to our first case today. In a plaintiff state a claim under Illinois against a dentist for consumer fraud, battery, and fraudulent misrepresentation without obtaining an affidavit of merit under Section 2622 of the Code of Civil Procedure, and Pat and I have talked about Code 6, uh, Section 2622 uh, several times in this podcast previously. That is the question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Mathis versus Yeldas that was argued this past week. The plaintiff alleges that the defendant dentist misrepresented the work that needed to be done and then intentionally drilled into a tooth to create damage that needed to be repaired. The circuit court dismissed the plaintiff's complaint against the dentist and the plaintiff appealed. The issue centers around whether the conduct of the dentist was related to care and the point of the defendant is that only a dentist can opine on that. Pat, tell us about this interesting case. Thanks, Dan. And it was very hard in reviewing the underlying pleadings what had actually happened and so I was assisted in our understanding by the advocate for the uh, for the plaintiff uh, commenting on what his view was of what the real issue was, because uh, I have to say that there wasn't a memorandum of opinion that kind of set out what the issues were from the circuit court's uh, position or circuit court's view, what they were dismissing on, what they weren't dismissing on, what the bases were, and so forth. So, and I didn't have the oral argument or the transcript of the uh, opinion, and I didn't have the energy or the time to dig into the briefs because the complaint is a, is complicated and it's it's three or four a language, it's the whole thing. So he commented <laughs> the following: His name is Nick Nepistool with Benjamin and Shapiro. Um, that's Benjamin and Shapiro, not Benjamin Shapiro, the law firm. Not 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 uh, not, not not the commentator. This is the law firm is Benjamin and Shapiro. His name <laughs> is uh, Nick Nepistool. He's written. Uh, uh, at least one, uh, perhaps several more, amicus briefs for ITLA on some cases. So he, he's 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 well known in the community. He wrote, "quote The trial court correctly held section six two six two two does not apply to the statutory cause of action provided by the Consumer Fraud and Deceptive Business Practices Act." The more interesting question presented by our appeal is whether dental services are included within the act's definition of quote trade and commerce end quote. The Consumer Fraud Act defines, quote, trade and commerce, end quote, in part as, quote, any services, end quote. We argue that cases holding that medical services are not included in the definition of, quote, any service, end quote, should not be followed because they are unjust and without statutory basis. So that there's a there's this amalgam of questions that that are, are raised by what the doctor or the dentist in this case did. Um, I, I will say that it, it's the the plaintiff are strike that the defendants are back on the issue how do you figure that out what was needed and what wasn't in order for it to be fraud if you don't have a dentist to say it and i think that does get back to the 2-622 issue and we keep mentioning that but i'll remind those that aren't familiar 2-622 is an affidavit of merit that is required from a doctor or dentist in our chiropractor in the same field um, as the uh, defendant doctor. It's in order to, it's kind of a gatekeeping function. 
Um, and if you don't have one in a healing arts malpractice case, then your case gets kicked. And we'll, we're going to talk about one of those next week um, coming up. Uh, hopefully it doesn't get decided before then. But we're going to talk about, hopefully talk about one of those next week. But this week, they're not bringing it what they're calling a healing arts malpractice case. They're bringing a consumer fraud case. And their argument is, is you don't need a claim for or an affidavit of merit because they're not bringing a medical malpractice case or dental malpractice case, as the case may be. They're bringing a consumer fraud case, different cause of action, different theory, different requirements, and so forth. And so as a consequence, they don't need this kind of uh, affidavit of merit. And because they don't need that affidavit of merit, uh, the, the question then becomes one of, well, are dental services within the context of any services. And there have been, there's cases that say that doctors, dentists, and others who are in the healing arts aren't within the definition of any services for consumer fraud. And the question is whether that case law is from outside the first district. The question is whether the first district is going to follow that law and, uh, and, and do what the uh, plaintiff asks, which is to hold that you don't need a 622 and you don't need, uh, you, you can file a separate independent claim. I don't understand how you determine what is and what isn't fraudulent uh, as it relates to a medical professional. Very tough. With, without having a medical professional tell you that. We we addressed a similar issue uh, of <clears throat> this in, the, in Indiana, where this was a, a doctor who had done a skin exam and it was a claim of sexual abuse. And uh, several times he had done a, a body exam of, of, of this patient, a female. And she then realized that he was not, or we alleges that he wasn't there to do a, an exam. He was, he was sexually assaulting her. Um, and the question in that case was whether they had to go through the medical malpractice procedure or not. The court held that it didn't, um, a, a, as it turned out. But I think it was a very close question. This seems to be a little bit different because this deals with one of the allegations is is a is a billing practice, uh, a balanced billing practice. And I have to be honest, Dan, I don't understand what that is or or how that relates to drilling or not drilling a tooth. I, I read the complaint; I wasn't exactly clear. They seem yeah. to be a muddle of these issues, and I just don't know enough about the issue to understand what's going on. I'm, it, I, I am certain that if there was a pleading defect, the defendants would have raised that as a as a defense. That didn't seem to be the issue they were raising, so it's my ignorance and my apologies of not understanding what they're alleging. But hopefully the appellate court decision will lay out some of that. But the fraud alleged the fraud that's alleged is that the the defend or the plaintiff who was a Medicaid recipient had some portion of these claim of some portions of these procedures that would be covered and some that would not. And the doctor did some the procedures that would not be covered and then told her to pay after having allegedly created the very thing that he needed to repair. I, I yeah. it seems a very strange bit of fraud. Uh, and, and, and quite the, if that's what happened, it's a very, uh, um, you put your license on the line for that. And we're talking like $600. Now, I guess, suppose if you do it enough, it, it, it adds up, but that also increases your risks of being caught. Are you really going to put your license on the line for $600? I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to put my license on for uh, nearly any amount, but especially for that amount, that's not going to do it. Uh, there better be a whole lot bigger pot of gold at the end of the rainbow than $600. Um, so I, I don't, I don't quite understand what the theory is, but the, the, the claim by the, the plaintiff is that this is a, uh, this is rampant or, you know, in the industry that dentists apparently are riven with fraud and drilling into people's teeth that don't, I mean, it seems to me, you know, we've got better teeth here in the United States to say they do in, 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 in England. Sorry, <laughs> English people. I've seen your teeth. They're not good. Uh, but I think there's plenty of people that need some drilling done in their teeth. And, uh, I, 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 maybe they are a bunch of frauds, but I have a hard, hard time believing that my, my, my daughter has an interest in going into dentistry and I've learned that there are only 66 dental schools in the yep. country. There are only three in Illinois. Um, and so it seems with a country of 330 million people or so 
that if anything, we have too few dentists. We don't need dentists to be making up work to do. Uh, but apparently we have dentists rampantly making up work to do. Uh, Dan, what, what are your thoughts on this case? Yeah, there's a lot going on here, Pat. And a lot, of, like you said, I don't really understand the full, uh, some, some of the things like the balance billing charges. One thing, one thing that uh, I kept thinking about is we've had cases before on Medical with False Claims Act. And I, again, if you're filing with Medicare or Medicaid or with uh, other health plans that might be federal uh, or it, it, it implicates, you can, you know, there, uh, I don't know if you remember, Pat, but we've had, I think it was a dentist, we've had some other doctors that were false billing. And this sounds, again, like almost like it rises to that. But again, I have no, no clue what's going on here. Uh, like you said, uh, the number of dentists is very small and, you know, they, yeah, I don't think they need to make work. I mean, if you've ever gone in for a procedure or anything, it takes forever to get in sometimes and especially in the COVID world. But, uh, you mentioned the smallness of these claims and I always marvel, but sometimes we live in the city of Chicago, Pat, and, uh, many an alderman and many, uh, other, uh, elected official have gone down for taking small bribes of hundreds of dollars for curbs or permits or you name it. And I always marvel at if your standard's that low, you know, boy, oh boy, you would have been in trouble in any job you ever had in your life. If it was yeah. stealing, stealing a pound of uh, burgers from McDonald's or yeah. anything. So it's a interesting case. And like you said, I hope the appellate court at least gives us like we get sometimes when we get the cases actually come out, we get some actual background and some actual details of what the hell's going on in this case. But, but the reason why I wanted to talk about this case, it has broader implications it does. Uh, other than this, other than the narrow facts of this particular set of allegations. So uh, looking forward to hearing what the court does, if we, there's a split, and if there is a split, then this is a case that would seem to be ripe to go to the Illinois Supreme Court, which is another reason to cover it. Dan, you were going to say something else. Yeah, yeah, Pat, it, it just, uh, I, I met, uh, you, you talked about it in, in your uh, discussion of the case. I want to remind listeners that Illinois is kind of an unusual uh, setup. We have only one appellate court, but we have six divisions, and yet five, 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 five divisions. It's five, five, five yeah. districts. The divisions districts. are in the first district. <laughs> yeah, it's early in the morning, but um, it is. <laughs> the the thing that Pat raises is an interesting phenomenon. Like if we when we do Indiana cases, there's one Indiana appellate court. Uh, there's one one Illinois appellate court and yet as pat talked about the districts don't necessarily follow each other because of the rules and so you get these splits that don't necessarily occur in a lot of other states because they don't have a similar setup to ours california does i think because it's so large texas but a lot of states only have one appellate court they function as one appellate court it's binding and and that's it so yeah so, and so what happened here is is the if there was a controlling case from the third district the first, if the first district hasn't spoken on the issue, the circuit court, the lower court, trial court, is bound by that third district. That's third district opinion. The contrast comes in if the first district has spoken on the issue, then the circuit court has to use the. It's sitting in the first district, then it has to use the. I need precedent in its district. the The funny thing comes in is if you have suppose you're in the first district, the trial court, and the second district has said a. And the third district has said not a, the, the 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 circuit court gets to choose which one it likes uh, to to use. It doesn't. It's not bound by either. So this is a case where you could have a split, and a split is one of the bases upon which a petition for leave to appeal can be granted for obvious reasons. You want to resolve these things, Dan. You, you mentioned that this is different from other states. Am I correct that we have what what is it? How 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 many circuit courts at the uh, at the federal level, we have eleven numbered ones, and then we have the federal 13. circuit, and there's and we have okay, there's thir there's thirteen, yeah, and they're individual. I mean, in within the seventh circuit, every yep. district court within Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois has to follow the seventh circuit. They can, if the seventh circuit has spoken on something. So it's a very similar setup to the federal setup, even though the the even though no one would say, and it wouldn't be true to say that the federal system has one appellate court. It has 13. But the Illinois, we have kind of, we have one court with five parts. 
<laughs> so it's, it, it makes for an, an interesting juxtaposition of a system. So with that, we will take our, our, our first break and come back with Cornice and Rose International versus Acuity. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 176 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and Acuity is arguing the scope of a CGL policy and the need to show damage to property other than the work in not only the Illinois Supreme Court in Acuity versus M&I Homes of Chicago LLC, but also before the Seventh Circuit in Cornice and Rose International versus Acuity. Cornice and Rose International involves an architect who was sued for negligent design of a building in, Ottawa, building in Iowa, easy for me to say, but also construction defects in that building. The acuity policy, the acuity policy, or acuity issued a CGL policy to Cornice and Rose that that did not have a professional services exclusion, and because the insured did not have errors and emission coverage, it sought coverage under its CGL policy. Boy, I, I, I think I smell a broker claim here before too long. Yep. Um, Dan, uh, tell us about this case. Pat, thanks. And I want to start off by, uh, if you listen to this oral argument, there's substantial reference to a case that uh, is the only uh, reported decision that has my name on it in the Seventh Circuit uh, from 1997, Prisco Serena Sturm Architects versus Liberty Mutual Insurance Company. And... Uh, by way of background, when, when I was a first-year associate and then second-year associate at Lord Bissell & Brook, uh, one of the great partners in my group, Bill Weaver, uh, had me write a motion for summary judgment on, a, on another insurance case uh, in the Circuit Court of Cook County. And I went in on that and uh, won it. And it was similar facts to this case. Uh, architects had designed uh, those eaves over the big houses like in Plainfield and Oswego and stuff where the flash uh, didn't work and there was leakage in the front hallway and uh, debate about whether it was a design defect from the architects and engineers or was it a construction defect from not using the right equipment and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I won it at the, at the uh, Circuit Court of Cook County. I was probably, it was, it was my first year. I was probably six or eight months in. I went up against a guy from Winston and Strawn. I don't remember his name at this point. And another guy, it was a three-party case. And I uh, went and argued in front of, I think it was uh, Judge Foreman. It may have been Judge Gustafson, but I think it was Foreman. And uh, won and got the entire amount that we had claimed uh, after uh, he, he ruled on the motion for summary judgment from the bench. And I, I have to tell you that those two uh, attorneys that were both much senior to me were very angry in the room as I was writing the order and trying not to gloat from my football days of kicking your ass. But uh, <laughs> event. we won that, it settled. And then there was a companion case, a different case that went up to uh, the Northern District of Illinois. It was before Judge Kikoris was up against a very good Liberty Mutual uh, attorney, Joe Postel. Uh, I don't know if you ever come across him. He's uh, the same, you realize. Yeah, yeah, no, same here. Get there. Yeah, get, yeah. He, he argued both the M&I case in the Supreme Court and he argued this case. Jo yeah. Joe was with Liberty for many years and is now yeah. uh, with uh, uh, yeah. what they're called now, Lindsay Rapids Port and Postel, if I remember correctly, or Lindsay and, and, Pickett Postel. Sorry. And, 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 and a shout out to him because he's probably, in, in, in all of my career, he's probably one of the most gentlemanly. He's a strong advocate. He's an excellent writer, an ex excellent arguer, excellent trial attorney. But he's just a gentleman, and, and it's all business. He doesn't take it personally. He doesn't ever attack you as a, or your clients. Just just a wonderful person. But in any event, uh, we went and argued, and, and uh, the, the partner said, you're going to do the summary judgment motions, and then you go, you go argue them in front of Kikoris. And anybody that goes in the Northern District knows that there's not a lot of argument, but a little bit. Uh, you know, Kikoris asked a few questions. And then about a month or two later, Kikoris came out with his opinion, and it pretty much was my uh, initial brief for a motion for summary judgment, and uh, he adopted it. 
And uh, let's just say that Posner, uh, after I left Lord Bissell and Brooke and went and watched this oral argument, wasn't having any of that. Um, and, and as Pat and I have talked about in this show before, other insurance provisions, uh, Illinois law for, for decades was a mess. It's, it's still kind of a mess because there's all kinds of progeny of cases that all come about excess and primary and language and how you do this and situations like this where it's it's really a professional or theoretically professional, although we talked in the first case today about drilling holes and whether that's got anything to do with the service of dental. So you get into some situations where there's kind of this mixed attribution type of questions and then you look at the other insurance provisions. So uh and and it's it's it was it was raised in the hearing, but I wanna read the beginning of the opinion from September 18th, 1997, Judge Posner, he was with Judge Diane Wood and Judge Coffey, uh, quote, torn between the desire to use common forms, which ought to lead to consistent results, and the need to tailor coverage to particular situations, the insurance industry often ends up with policies that are, to put it charitably, convoluted. This has led most states, including Illinois, to adopt rules requiring policies to be construed in the light most favorable to a finding of coverage so that people who reasonably think they have insured themselves are not unpleasantly surprised when they submit a claim, end quote. And then he talks about the, the coverage uh, uh, thing here. Um, and he says, many of the policy provisions on which liberty relies are ambiguous and must therefore be construed to provide coverage. We find, however, that one provision, the one excluding liability for professional services from coverage, clearly applies to the underlying claim and excuses liberty from the duty to defend the claim. We therefore also reject the district court's conclusion that PSSA was entitled to an award under Section 155. And so that's kind of a setup, long setup for this case because this case is, is again, it's an architect who designed a building this Pat said in Iowa. Uh, the question is about whether there's construction defect. And problem number one here, and, and we've talked about this as well, is that the architect in this case was bare on Arizona missions. So even if it was under an Arizona missions policy, theoretically, uh, he ain't got no coverage, as they say. So he is looking for coverage, like every insured ever in the history of humanity. When they get hit with something that costs money, they look for any insurance policy that, that might cover them. And so what do they look for? They looked here in, in this case, as Pat said, to the CGL policy. And uh, so the, 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 the hearing before the Seventh Circuit, and again, Pat and I have talked about this. It's very... Uh, Seventh Circuit is very peculiar in terms of length of arguments. This one waited in at about 20 minutes and 20 seconds or something like that with rebuttal. There was rebuttal this time. Sometimes, as we've talked about in this show, Seventh Circuit, for whatever reason, there's no rebuttal. I don't you know if it's out of time. time. You gotta, you well, sometimes you ran out of time, but sometimes it's like 14 or 15 minutes and the hearing's over. And I'm like, okay, well, there's no rebuttal. Maybe, maybe the judges didn't have anything to ask or something like that. But in any event... The, the, the question here again is, is uh, there were design defect allegations and then a laundry list of construction issues and other things. Um, and, and in this case, the policy that was issued by the CGL carrier had an exclusion for professional conduct. Um, and so, like I said, they asked the insurer of the CGL policy to cover. Um, and one of the things that was discussed by the appellant lawyer in this case was that uh, the uh, work product, your own work products, not covered under CGL products. And so, again, for those not familiar with insurance policies, Pat and I have talked about this before. When I teach insurance law, and Pat will be uh, speaking at the Insurance Law Committee, CBA, uh, in a couple weeks on cases, uh, the, the insuring agreement often is it seems very clear in that you have coverage, but it's subject to exclusions and, and other conditions. And then there's a laundry list of endorsements, exclusions, professional services, uh, employment stuff, advertising, cyber, security, war, uh, completed products, work uh, product, etc. And so the appellant here in this case for the CGL carrier identified that this policy has uh, that your own work product is not covers. And that the, right, the, it's the, amazing to have a CGL policy that doesn't have a professional services exclusion. It, it's it amazing is. to have this conflation. I mean, normally this would be very easy. There'd be a professional services exclusion. This would be over. But yeah. there's no such exclusion. So they're having to do what happened in the or in the uh, COVID nineteen cases where they they right. didn't have the virus exclusion. So they went to it wasn't it wasn't an occurrence. Yeah, and uh, so 
uh, and again, a lot of a lot of discussion of of, of Prisco uh, by by the appellants. Um, and again, that case may may in fact work for them. The appellee was also asked about um, uh, one one of the things that was also asked about Pat was was uh, of the appellee, and and they raised was that this policy also doesn't talk about intended or expected damages. It doesn't have that language in there. So. It's it's kind of a it's an unusual situation because like Pat said it, to to not have a professional exclusion to not have intended or expected is is kind of unusual and and as we've talked about the, the vast majority of 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 property casualty insurers use either ISO or uh, AIS or some other licensing bureau there's not a lot that write their own policies but I I don't know if this was a non-standard policy here. I really don't know the circumstances of why this policy is is not your typical policy, and so it'll be interesting to see. But I don't, I think I think the Prisco Serena case I think is going to be um, uh, problematic for uh, for the architect here uh, uh, having knowledge of that case, and it's it's been followed for 26 years now, almost 27. So, Pat, your thoughts on this case? I I think they're going to have to wait until the Illinois Supreme Court comes down in the uh, M&I case. I think so. If, if the Illinois Supreme Court says that uh, Illinois is going to be in line with the rest of the country and not require property damage separate from the work that was done, then this becomes a much different result. I, I agree. I, I think they're going to have to wait. They, won't, they shouldn't have to wait too long. But it was, it was, it was somewhat unusual. I, I was surprised that no one brought it up. I mean, if I were the, if I were the architect, it would be the first thing I would have said. You know, there's a case pending before the Illinois Supreme Court that decide that's that is going to be give you a lot of information about how this case should be decided, and Mr. Postel knows about it, and uh, you you need to wait until they decide because I, I I'm not sure how that argument's going to come out, but the appellate no. court decision came out in favor of the insured. So if I were the architect, I'd say hold your horses, wait till the uh, wait till the the case comes down, and then go from there. I, I'm surprised that that issue didn't come up. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you. I always, you always wonder some at times, you know, what, why, why certain things aren't brought up. But uh, you, you would think that the, both parties, and especially the architect here, would have found that case because it's like you said, it's important. It came off for the insured at the appellate level. If the Illinois it Supreme Court rules, a very similar, if not the same issue. And I was like, well, the Illinois or the uh, the uh, the. Um, Seventh Circuit doesn't have to guess. It's right. going to have an answer pretty soon because the cases that this entire body of law, go back and talk about this M&I case, is developed at the appellate court level. It is based upon two Supreme Court decisions um, that predate the, the case that Dan was talking about. They're, they're the early 90s. Yep. And so they're over, what... 30, they're over 30 years old. Which is what we relied upon when we were briefing this. Exactly. And and if you read this Prisco case, it probably refers to those cases you're talking about, Pat. And yeah, yeah. It, 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 so, like, okay, let's figure out what. Uh, <laughs> if you don't have to guess, you're going to have an answer from the Illinois Supreme Court relatively soon. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with Overland Bond and Investment Corporation versus Calhoun. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 176 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And in this case, can a party have its cake by suing in circuit court and then eat it too by having the defendant's counterclaim arbitrated? That along with whether the plaintiff waived the right to arbitrate the counterclaim by waiting 16 months to raise the arbitration are the issues to be considered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Overland Bond and Investment Corp versus Calhoun. The plaintiff is a subprime automobile lender that installs starter and interrupter devices on vehicles. 
that it lends money for that filed suit against the defendants when they fail to pay on their loans. The defendants filed counterclaims alleging that the plaintiff cannot install the device as a, a backdoor improper repossession. After 16 months, the plaintiff sought to compel arbitration, and the circuit court denied the motion. The plaintiffs appealed, and relying on the contract's arbitration clause with the defendants, asserted that the plaintiff had the option to either to litigate in court or to arbitrate, but that the defendants could only arbitrate their claims against the plaintiff. Let's say the panel of justices was not buying it. Maybe an understatement. Pat, tell us about this interesting case. Thanks, Dan. And this is... Uh... Uh, to say they weren't buying it is is an, is an understatement. So for sure, they file. They, they they're making this distinction. And Dan, can we make sure I get this right? Your disputes and our disputes, right? This is yes. And you have to have your disputes arbitrated, but our disputes we get to decide. Right. And I'm like, it, it was it was a Justice Pachinski. I think I, so. Just saying, the hell do you mean our disputes and your disputes? They're disputes. Parts I mean, is parts, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if I have a claim again, it didn't say your claims against us. It said your disputes. Well, that's a that is some that is some crappy drafting. Um, and and uh, it's going to come back and bite them because guess what? They do not want this in the circuit court. Um, so what they've got back is a counter as a as a punitive class action counterclaim, and they've got a class action waiver in their agreement. That's going to go out. That's likely to go out the window. But what they did is is they filed a a motion to uh, a motion to dismiss along with or in the alternative to uh, to uh, compel arbitration. Or they wait. I'm sorry. They waited too long to do this. And when you bring your, you know, when you bring, we don't have mandatory counterclaims in Illinois. It's not like federal court, no. um, which kind of creates some issues. But the the it's waiver is based upon you know a a substantive submission of the issue to the um, to the court. So if you recall, we discussed AOJ operations versus Offit earlier this year. And in that case, the court held that a motion to transfer venue was not a substantive challenge that required uh, or that that saw that the arbitration, the right to arbitrate was waived. But there was a case that came down last week called Beecham versus Lakeview Law Group of Sunny Shalom PLLC that held that a simultaneous filing of a motion to dismiss on the merits under 619 with a motion to compel arbitration, waive the right to arbitrate by presenting a substantive issue to the circuit court. My column this week in the uh, Law Bulletin is all about arbitration. There have been a ton of arbitration cases that have come out in the last uh, last several months. And so trying to catch up on some of those by going through some, many of which we've talked about uh, on the show. Um, but this is the one that's kind of in the hopper on what you can what you can do. And I've had a case involving, you know, speaking of old cases, I had a case, it was a it was a products liability case, not a not a case of not a contract case like this one, or a consumer fraud case like this one involving a starter interrupter device. And what this device does is it essentially prevents the delinquent borrower from starting their car, which is an amazing way to get them to pay. Um, but the argument by the plaintiff is or by the by the borrower is is that's an illegal uh, that's an that's an illegal repossession of the vehicle. So the case I had, the claim was, is the lady was going down the road on the expressway at speed, and all the, she claimed that the vehicle turned off and caused her to lose control, and she claimed that the starter interrupter device is what did that. When we did the inspection of the vehicle, I learned something amazing. We go in. The first thing that my uh, expert does is he goes and pulls one of the taillights and he takes one of the taillights out and he shows me the filament and he says, you see the filament here? That filament had power when the vehicle, when the vehicle crashed based on how it broke, which means that the starter interrupter device didn't, was it uh, that the car was still on when the vehicle crashed based on how the filament broke. That was five minutes into the inspection. We had all kinds of other reasons why the starter interrupter device, how it was wired, it, it couldn't have caused what she was claiming it caused. But 
the idea that we're going to walk and look at filaments and in, in lights to tell me what had happened at the other end of the car was amazing. It's like, okay, that's good. I'm, I'm glad. And it, and I had two, I had a mechanical engineer and I had an electrical engineer and it was the, you know, the mechanical engineer was also an accident reconstructionist. And obviously the guy I had, the, the electrical engineer, he was a, he worked in Detroit forever. Uh, had been at, he was at the University of Michigan, electrical engineering, that kind of thing. And my other guy was an Annapolis educated mechanical engineer. Um, so I, I had good experts and we went in and, uh, the two of them looked at the filament. He shows it to the electrical engineer. The electrical engineer goes, hmm, yep, that's right. It's like, oh, that's, that's, that's good. We're going to break filaments. So anyway, this, uh, this case is uh, a, a really, um, it, it's, it is a consumer, it's a consumer uh, action type case and uh, consumer protection issue. Um, so I, I really, um, I, 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 I really think the defendants or the plaintiff's going to have a hard time here. The plaintiff, I say, is the is the is the borrower, um, and so I'm sorry, the lender, and uh, they're going to have a very difficult time uh, in this case. Dan, what are your thoughts? No, I think I think you're right, Pat. And uh, cars are fascinating anymore. They've they've got like a black box type of thing. Every car that's been made since 2000 something, and uh, just amazing what what when they. Uh, go into a car just like airplanes that can figure out a lot of what happened uh, with respect to a car. I didn't know about the filament stuff. That's pretty amazing, but uh, interesting case. But I, th- I think they've got a problem here. And uh, as you said, we don't have mandatory arbitration, although there's a mandatory arbitration program that cases get shifted to in commercial and law here. Yeah. Um, but those that's that's not automatic. It's, it's determined by judges. I just had one, uh, a hearing on Thursday that... Uh, 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 that that we covered for for the law division commercial calendar, but um, it'll be interesting to see how this one goes. I I don't think that the lender here is going to win on this. You have to do this, but we can do this type of yeah. argument. It makes it makes it not efficient or economical and or fair. Or fair gives two different playing fields. So yeah, I I don't think that's how that's going to work. So that brings us to our COVID uh, and bi and. Uh, and uh, BIPA cases for the week. Dan, uh, what do we got? We don't have any BIPA or BI. Uh, BI, we'd, we expect to maybe have a few more kind of lagging stuff. But I wanted to share a little bit of, that I've seen that's uh, a concerning development, Pat. And I don't know if you're going to talk about it all to the Chicago Bar Insurance Law Committee. But uh, there's no cases decided yet. But what I'm seeing in the daily uh, reports of cases filed is an increasing number of lawsuits filed under the Ge- uh, Genetic Information Privacy Act, which was enacted about a decade before BIPA, uh, that laid dormant for many years, and now Amazon and Ford and uh, Ancestry.com have been sued. But what's what, what's the current development in, in, in the arena of insurance, where Pat and I spend a lot, a lot of our times, is, is all the large life insurance companies, uh, New York Life, uh, Matt, Massachusetts Mutual, Northwestern, State Farm, I haven't seen all say yet, but they probably will be, uh, have been sued under the Genetic Information Privacy Act for uh, collecting genetic information and family history uh, for life insurance. Uh, if you read the statute, it's interesting because Section 20 talks about health insurance, accident and health uh, insurance policies, and that you can't collect for those. Uh, but I, it, it, the, my, my view is, is that these cases won't go anywhere, but it's a novel. Again, we don't know what the Illinois Supreme Court or the Illinois courts are going to do with this. And it raises some substantial exposure for life insurance companies. I mean, I don't know how you'd go about uh, issuing a life insurance policy without underwriting it by getting the, the information. That it'd be, be like writing a cyber policy and saying you can't get cyber information or the data that they're collecting to be able to issue a premium. How the hell are you going to uh, say that Dan Cotter is, is as healthy as Pat Eckler or whomever it is at the same age and same characteristics? It's It's nonsense to me, but... I just uh, noted it, and I've seen at least five or six or ten uh, lawsuits in the CNS, the daily court news service uh, distributions we get, and so I wanted to raise it for listeners. Well, that's it, that's disturbing because you know the, the, these these alphabet soup <laughs> oh my uh, God. claims are are solutions in search of a problem. Um, I'm waiting for somebody to have something bad happen to them as a result of a violation of any of these things. Um, and and I, I, it's very aggravating because all it is, is it's, 
a huge regulatory burden for what I can ascertain as being zero benefit. There are plenty of shenanigans going on um, by businesses and others um, that can be dealt with that aren't this. This doesn't do anything but no. make work for lawyers. And I'm all for making work for lawyers, but that isn't the, uh, th- there's got to be more productive ways to spend our time. Yeah. And it's costly. Even if, even if the, even if these insurance companies are right, these class actions, as we've talked about on this show, and, and as anybody who's done a class action knows to defend one is just expensive. And, and it, there's a war of attrition that, you know, to, you know, the, the one, the one place where insurers were successful uniformly was on the BI stuff that we've covered extensively on here, but that's unusual. And you, you go to the, you know, in a state like Illinois that has these statutes, it's a crapshoot uh, of what's going to happen. It's a fee-shifting statute, so you're not going to. The lawyers aren't going to stop trying to find a way. The plaintiffs right. are going to keep trying because there's a fee-shifting statute. They're going to keep at it, and it, it produces no no benefit. There's no. nothing productive created by it. No, no. Um, it, it's it is very very frustrating. So with that, that brings us to our predictions this week. We were one and zero. Dan is two hundred and sixty-seven. And a half, 58 and a half, and 19. I am 264 and a half, 61 and a half, and 19. Uh, the case that came out was uh, discussed on episode 173. It is Margulis versus Shear. Uh, Dan, uh, why don't you tell us about what happened uh, in this in this case? Sure. This was the uh, uh, plaintiff in this case uh, moved for a new trial. The jury had found in favor of defendants on plaintiff's claim of medical negligence. Uh, the plaintiff had claimed that the defendants here were negligent in delaying his surgery to evacuate a scrotal hematoma that he developed as a result of an inguinal hernia surgery. Uh, on appeal, plaintiff argued that the trial court abused its discretion in several ways by allowing defendants to introduce evidence of plaintiff threatening and harming his parents, permitting the defense expert to reference photographs of other scrotal hematomas during his testimony, and permitting the same witness to opine on the condition of plaintiff's penis. And uh, in this case, the uh, appellate court affirmed, and uh, so we got that one right. We, we did. Uh, there was also another issue, is one of the, the plaintiff uh, had PTSD. Right. And the, the, um, one of the jurors was asked if she had PTSD, and she said, well, I was a witness to the Highland Park shooting, and this trial took place shortly thereafter, and the, the shooter in that case was being arraigned on the day the jurors came then there was, a, uh, as you can imagine, a great deal of security and men with large guns there uh, protecting the courthouse. And the juror didn't say she had a diagnosis of it, but it, it seemed that her testimony would have been favorable to the plaintiff, not to the defendant. But right. she was asked, uh, you know, by the defendant, can you be fair in spite of the yes, I think I can be fair. The plaintiff did not exercise his uh, peremptory challenge. In fact, he had had some of in his pocket. When they completed jury selection, this juror went on, just juror 318, she went on to be the foreman, uh, foreperson of the jury. And the plaintiff claimed as like an, it's like an overarching issue that there was this prejudice as a result of the, uh, the shooting, but then the um, uh, arraignment of the shooter at the um, courthouse and there, this text message that was allowed to be admitted into evidence where the plaintiff said that he was going to kill his family. He had obvious big problems with his family and this text message was brought in in order to show that he had problems pre-existing the alleged medical malpractice. And the, the plaintiff said there's this giant problem with the way in which the whole, whole uh, trial was conducted and there was prejudice as a result and the court just went, that is rank speculation. You didn't use your preemptory challenge on this juror, and why would you have? I mean, they didn't say this part, but I say, why would you have? She, if anything, would be sympathetic to the plaintiff, right? Um, you, <coughs> this was a point of this was a point of juror. Uh, if anything, the defense should have struck her, but they didn't. They didn't. Uh, it ended yeah. up working out for him. But I, I, um, I, I didn't understand. But that th- there's a couple lessons in there. You better have some pretty good evidence if you're going to say the jurors. Um, we're influenced by something, right? Uh, that's gonna we're gonna, we're gonna hear about that in the ca- case that I've, I was in my column last week in the law bulletin regarding the post by a plaintiff's lawyer about a retrial and their argument in response to the post trial motion is you have no evidence the jurors actually saw the post, 
So where's the where's the where's the problem? Right. You know, it's like oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very <laughs> You know, you conducted yourself in a really bad way, but no one knew it, or at least the right people didn't know about it. And I, yeah, I, I suppose that's true. That's not much of a defense. Uh, you got away with it, uh, is your argument. I, I got away with it is essentially the argument. And that doesn't seem like a very, uh, that's the that's the Croft versus Viper case that's still pending in the circuit court. We'll see right. that on appeal uh, because of the size of the verdict over $40 million. Uh, the, the appellate court's going to get a chance to pass on that issue. So we'll follow it. But uh, I... I got away with it. It's not the, it may work, but it's not a very tasteful argument. Let's just say that. Um, So that brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong this week. Uh, Mathis versus Yildiz. I think this gets reversed. I think so. Uh, Cornice and Rose versus Acuity. I think we punt because we need to know, we we need more information. I I, I agree. I I think, I I mean, yeah. Under normal circumstances, I would say it would get reversed. But, yeah, we, we need to see what happens with the M&I case. So I think we punt. I, I would nor, I would think that it would be affirmed. But if they've read – if they had – if M&I wasn't pending, but because M&I is pending, I, I, I think that that changes, changes the game. You remember Acuity won below. That it wasn't – you have to show property damage and, and – and, they, yeah, they, no, I had it backwards. I'm, I'm backwards. Yeah. That's okay. That's make yeah. sure. And then Overland Bond, that's getting that's getting uh, um, affirmed. Affirmed. Uh, they're not getting to do. They're not getting to do that little stuff. No. So, with that, that brings us to uh, the rule of the week, Dan. And why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Sure. And you you've actually found this. It's in the predictions case we covered uh, the Margulis case. Uh, as we've often said, Pat, don't be in a position to bring negative attention to you, the advocate. Uh, in that case, uh, the district court admonished the advocate. And why don't you, uh, why don't you, tell us what what the court said to to the advocate in this case? So at the outset, we briefly comment on plaintiff's statement of facts and his submitted report of proceedings. Illinois Supreme Court Rule three forty one H six. Now we often talk about Rule three forty one H seven, which is you have to have citations. This is three forty one H six, a different rule on how to structure your brief requires that an appellant's brief provide a statement of facts contains the facts necessary for an understanding of the case. Here, the plaintiff's statement of facts is lacking in the detail and specificity necessary for a full understanding of the relevant proceedings, which included motions in limine, jury instruction, jury selection, a multi-day jury trial, and a post-trial motion. We note that the plaintiff's statement of facts is largely copied and pasted from the background section of his October 17, 2022 motion for a new trial. What may be appropriate in a motion for the trial court is not necessarily appropriate for an appellate court. This court had to rely heavily on defendant's brief for a sufficient overview of the relevant proceedings. We admonish plaintiff to provide a complete recitation of the relevant facts in future appeals. There are two sets of problems that folks often have in the statement of facts. Number one, it's incomplete like this one. And number two, it has argument. Drafting a statement of facts in an appellate brief is an art. You have to both include the facts and do your argument in the middle of it without actually appearing to do the argument. Hmm. You can present facts in an argumentative fashion without arguing. That is what you are tasked with doing in the facts section. It is a very, can be at times, a very fine line of what is and what is not argument. You could present the same facts, and we've all seen it done, in two different ways and make one set make in, in one set make it sound like it favors one side and another set make it sound like it the other side without it actually being argument. So this is a very delicate balance you have to walk, but you gotta do it. Um, and if you don't, you're gonna get whacked if you don't have enough facts, and you get whacked on the other end if you have too much argument. So it's a very important part of the of the um, uh, appellate process because the court is relying on the parties to tell them what the fact, they've never seen this case before. They didn't sit through the trial uh, in this case or the motion for summary. They need, they need you to tell them. And it helps them tremendously if you've got good citations to the common law record so they can go find it and get the citations so they can make their life easy. People often forget our job as lawyers is to help the court help the court reach a conclusion we like, but help the court nonetheless. And a way you can help the court is by writing a, writing a brief that is helpful, which is what the defendants did here, had a statement of facts that was actually helpful 
And I'm sure they moved to strike as well. And they said, you know, this thing, th- th- this statement of facts stinks. And <laughs> you, uh, but here's a good statement of facts. And that was obviously a nerd to the benefit of the Appleese here, because now the court is not happy with the plaintiff and he's, and he's lost and all of the issues he lost below that is. And the, all of the issues I think here were abuses of discretion. So if you're making the court's life hard, you are put yourself very far behind the eight ball and, right. and you're going to make yourself, uh, have yourself a, a very, very hard time. Uh, Dan, anything to add on that? No, it's just, again, it's a reminder to, to, uh, be very careful in how you approach the practice of law. You don't want to be, you don't want to be in this position. Right. Exactly. And so with that, we will take our leave. Thank you everybody for joining us this week on the podium and panel podcast. We will see you next week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.